Welcome to the ANCDS podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm an associate professor at California State University, Northridge, a speech pathologist at UCLA Medical Center, and currently co-chair of the ANCDS certification board. In this episode of the ANCDS podcast, I talk with Rhonda Winans-Mitrick and Dr. Patrick Doyle about aphasia rehabilitation and, in particular, their intensive residential aphasia treatment program at the Pittsburgh VA called PIRATE, which stands for the Program for Intensive Residential Aphasia Treatment and Education. Dr. Patrick Doyle is a speech-language pathologist whose clinical and research work is focused on the rehabilitation of language processing disorders following brain injury. He's an associate professor of communication science and disorders at the University of Pittsburgh, an ASHA fellow, and has received the honors of the Association of VA Speech-Language Pathologists. Dr. Doyle previously served as a visiting scientist in the Assessment, Classification, and Epidemiology Unit of the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland, where he collaborated on the revision of the International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health, often referred to as the ICF. He's also the developer of the Burden of Stroke Scale, called the BOSS, and is the founding director of the Pirate Program. Rhonda Winans-Mitrick has been a speech-language pathologist since 2009. She began her career at the Pittsburgh VA by providing intensive treatment to veterans and active duty service members through the Pirate Program. During her time with Pirate, she developed the clinical processes for in-person and remote candidacy evaluations and follow-up using telepractice technology. Rhonda is the recipient of the 2012 Association of VA Speech-Language Pathologists Outstanding Achievement Award for her work with the Pirate Program and has co-authored a peer-reviewed manuscript in 2014 that details the Pirate Program, describes its rationale, clinical processes, and outcomes. To begin our conversation, I asked Dr. Doyle and Rhonda to describe their backgrounds and what interests them professionally. We'll start with Dr. Doyle. Sure, thanks, Mike. So I uh, began uh, practicing uh, speech-language pathology uh, at the VA Medical Center in 1980 here in Pittsburgh and worked as a clinician provider for many years on our neurobehavioral unit at the Highland Drive VA uh, and eventually decided that I wanted to better understand the mechanisms underlying some of the treatment effects that I was seeing and some of the treatment effects that I was not seeing and uh, went back and uh, received my doctorate degree and uh, around uh, 87, 88, started uh, submitting um, research applications to the VA Merit Review Program to try to better understand some of the cognitive and behavioral mechanisms underlying the uh, treatments that uh, I was providing and and the outcomes that I was seeing. Pat, do you feel like you have a a particular emphasis that's spanned the arc of your research career, or has it been pretty diverse? 
Well, for a long time, I was uh, particularly interested in interventions uh, and ways of planning for generalization of facts. So my early work uh, included interventions and uh, studies looking at the effects of different, of manipulating different aspects of treatment to plan for, to maximize generalization effects. And specifically early on, I was looking uh, at uh, interventions focusing on connected speech uh, and, and sentence production. And so um, the literature I was reading at that time was really coming out of the child language literature. And I was using techniques like incidental training, which uh, was first introduced in the child language. And I think if I, uh, my memory serves me correctly, was used quite a bit in the uh, literature with children that uh, at the time were, were considered mentally retarded. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, and the language delayed literature. And so we were doing things like incidental training, a lot of loose training procedures, which was a technique that was first introduced, I believe, by Stokes and Bear, uh, again, going way back into behavioral literature. And in fact, my dissertation work was focused on uh, improving uh, WH uh, interrogative questions and in, in people with aphasia using a loose training technique. Mm. That work was published in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, which was not a journal at the time that most pathologists were publishing it. And again, I published it there because the the intervention uh, was one that I uh, borrowed from the uh, Applied Behavioral Analysis literature that was being used in different populations at the time. Yeah. What what is incidental learning? I I know I've heard of it, but... Yeah, so it's basically a technique that is uh, employed in the course of ongoing natural communicative interactions mm. where the provider or the teacher, in many cases, this I think came out of classroom instruction, where the teacher observed an opportunity to model a particular type of behavior and then try to shape that behavior and they just it's basically um allowing the patient in my case the the students in the case of that literature that i was reading to engage in natural conversational uh, interactions and observe opportunities teaching opportunities for specific behaviors that one had identified yeah and of course lately you've you've also done a lot of work in trying to measure those outcomes that are kind of related to it seems like your your early interest in generalization right i mean outcomes how people are doing as a result of their treatment out in the real world yeah the path from there from that early work so i was involved in that up until like the mid 90s and then you know the icf was being developed the international classification of functioning disability and health at the time it was called icidh I believe. And there was a lot of discussion at that time around, you know, the whole uh, World Health Organization's concept of disability. And I became interested in that whole conversation and then wound up just informally collaborating with some folks at the World Health Organization. 
in their epidemiology, I think it's a classification and epidemiology unit, I believe was the name of the um, unit that I was collaborating with. And they were interested in measuring functioning as compared to impairment. Uh, you know, they were trying to move away from that medical model into a more uh, social model or broader conceptualization of, of functioning and well-being and health. So health is a functional or functional health constructs. And that was sort of the link between my interest in generalized functional communication and then this functional health concept. And that actually wound up in a more formal collaboration with those folks that wound up um, with me actually doing a sabbatical of sorts over there uh, and working on a revision of the uh, ICF and participating in the multi-country uh, HUDA survey. I don't know if many of your listeners listeners will be familiar with the HUDAS. I think most people are familiar with the WHOQA, which is the World Health Organization's Quality of Life Assessment. But before the WHOQA, there was, well, maybe simultaneously, uh, another group was developing the WHODAS, the World Health Organization Disability Assessment Schedule. And that was a a patient-reported uh, outcome instrument that was being developed through qualitative uh, and quantitative measures in 24 different countries around the world. And it strictly measured functioning, which those folks were conceptualizing as being very different from quality of life. Quality of life has many dimensions. Uh, if you look at the who, at the who call, there are many uh, dimensions in the who call that aren't necessarily uh, focused on functioning. You know, so it's like living situation and things like that. So the WHODAS was looking at physical functioning, cognitive functioning, communicative functioning, and things like that. And I actually wound up uh, collaborating with the World Health Organization in 2000 and enrolling stroke survivors, which was not one of the populations they were enrolling in the multi-country survey. But I wound up enrolling stroke survivors in that in that multi-country survey uh, here from Pittsburgh, uh, and and included their data. Those their data was included in the final development of the Kudos, and we actually reported the factor structure of the Kudos in stroke survivors at a meeting. Uh, that was those abstracts were published in I believe I can't recall now but they, but the factor structure of the kudos was uh, reported in the literature as an abstract and then subsequently when I came back we did another study funded here by VA where the where the kudos uh, we looked at the kudos in people with severe hearing loss and my colleagues uh, Harvey Abram. Abrams and uh, some other audiologists within VA contributed data to that project. And those studies have been published, I believe, in, in the audiology literature. Hmm. Yeah. So that's sort of transitioned into, and then upon returning, we wound up uh, getting a, a VA merit review, a multi-site study that many people who are members of ANCDS uh, participated in, uh, Julie Wambaugh, participated in it, um, 
Roberta Elman contributed data to um, the, what, what has turned out to become the boss, the burden of stroke scale. Right. So the burden of stroke scale is sort of an outgrowth of my work on the Kudos uh, multi-country survey. And folks that are familiar with the burden of stroke scale know that it looks at different domains of functioning, but also uh, the impact of functional uh, limitations on measures of mood and life satisfaction and participation in valued life activities. Mike, I think you're familiar with that instrument. Yeah, and sure. Essentially, if you endorse difficulty in a functional domain, then you get probes regarding how much those functional limitations impact your day-to-day mood, your overall life satisfaction, and your ability to participate valued life activities. That really was sort of blending some of the concepts from the who does with the who call. Uh, because, you know, it was my feeling at the time that stroke uh, didn't just impact functioning, that stroke definitely had an impact on someone's psychological uh, well-being as well as their function. Yeah. And that's, that's what sort of led me to the whole patient outcome thing and then when our colleague will hula arrived here we then narrowed that focus even further from you know looking at uh, the burden of stroke scale which assesses you know physical functioning communicative functioning cognitive functioning uh and well-being then we narrowed our focus even further just to communicative functioning and then will sort of ran with that and developed what is now uh, and, and it's been published, at least its initial psychometric properties, the ACOM, the Aphasia Communication Outcome Measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, of course, that's um, because of Will now, that, that measure is using more modern psychometric methods uh, to measure communicative function. Right. And so that, that is computer-administered. Uh, right, Right. Well, it's it's the it's the uh, the methods, the psychometric, the psychometric methods that will employed to uh, develop that measure is what permits it to be a smart test. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that has been computerized and there is a, you know, a computer adaptive version. So the individual, the, the assessor can either administer the I believe it's 54 items, 59 items. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a 59-item version, and then there are 10-item yeah. version. 12, I'm sorry, no, Rhonda administers this test, so she knows these things better than I do. So so there's a 59-item a version, which is the full version, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's a 12-item uh, version that uses these IRT methods uh, and algorithms that, selects the next item of the test based upon performance on the prior item. So it's using priors to determine what the next item will be. And it's the psychometric methods underlying those items that permits the SMART test uh, to provide a score estimate that is not quite as precise, but very closely uh, as uh, almost as precise as the full 59 item version. Yeah, I give it. And I do the the shortened version because again time constraints, but uh, it's, yeah, it's a great 
great instrument. Uh, Rhonda, uh, how about you? How did you become a speech pathologist? (laughs) So I finished my graduate work at the University of Pittsburgh in 2009. And I was fortunate enough to do my clinical fellowship here at VA Pittsburgh under the clinical direction of both you, Mike, and um, Dr. Christine Matthews. And well, that was key. It was also very clear to me the strengths here at VA Pittsburgh with regards to the research opportunities as well, as Dr. Doyle has so eloquently defined thus far. And the marriage between clinic and research was very apparent to me. Um, So fortunately, a few months after I was done with my fellowship, there was a full-time position available. Um, I was lucky enough that it was for the pirate program, which was the program for intensive residential aphasia treatment and education. And so I was hired on um, working for pirate initially. And uh, I've Seen a lot of patients in that program, done the uh, assessments, and and it's really been a great ride from there. Yeah, and I think you were first author, weren't you, on a paper describing the pirate program? I was. Um, back in 2014, we published our clinical process, our methods, our results, and our outcomes. And we're very fortunate to have had a successful program and continue to serve our veterans and active duty service members with the through that program. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of listeners are probably interested in hearing about the pirate program because intensive aphasia treatment programs are becoming at least talked about more. um, And there are a few more of them out there, but uh, still, they're not very many. And so most therapists don't have any experience in something like that. Um, I know when I describe to people my experience, you know, my experience in pirate and tell them, you know, that you're seeing the same client every day and how many hours of treatment you're seeing them. Um, People are kind of, I don't know if shocked is the right word, but I think um, I know for me, before we started that program, one of my concerns was what would it be like to just be doing therapy with one person every day, you know, would we be pulling our hair out at, at the end of a week or something like that? And, um, but it's not like that, is it? Not at all. I had the same initial reaction, you know, what am I going to do with this gentleman for four or five or even six hours a day? Um, but you would be shocked at how little time that actually is when the month goes by um, kind of in a blink of an eye and you're just kind of figuring out what's working for that patient and it's time to discharge them. So, Yeah, yeah. Pat, what, what made you decide to, because I know it was a lot of work, to to get pirate up and running what prompted you to do that well it was a number of things mike and uh, it's it was something that had been brewing in my mind for a number of years before we actually were able to do it uh mick mcneil and i talked about this for years Mm. uh and the primary impetus was that as I mentioned earlier, when I first started practicing, we had a neurobehavioral unit 
uh, at, at Highland Drive VA. And we had stroke survivors with aphasia on that unit that, unlike today, the only reason they were there was because they had aphasia. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, if you have a stroke and you can walk and you can transfer and you can get to the bathroom, you're discharged a couple of days after stroke. But we had veterans with clean focal aphasias that resided on that unit uh, that we saw daily, mm-hmm. along with uh, a team uh, that it consists of neuropsychologists, neurologists, uh, physical therapists, nurses, and whatnot. And so we had this, you know, uh, it was an inpatient program, but these guys were, uh, you know, did require medical care per se yeah uh, and so it's an extended inpatient rehabilitation program and then you, you know at some point that all went away uh, when managed care came in uh, yeah. that unit was closed mm-hmm. and we went through a period of time where just like today uh, this is not new now um, there were all of these barriers for people with aphasia to access care and uh, we knew that there were veterans in our community that needed care, uh, that needed services, uh, that were not able to access those services, uh, not in our case, VA because of payment, but basically because of travel barriers and uh, just you know the ability to access our services. And the thing that resulted in us really being able to start Pirate was that um, our medical center built uh, these residential villas that were intended for homeless veterans and uh, veterans recovering from uh, addictive disorders. And having been at VA for a number of years and having uh, good relationships with our chief of staff and our medical center director, when I saw that those buildings were opening up, they were three-bedroom villas. I mm-hmm. went to our chief of staff. And I said, hey, I need one of those billets. And he just sort of laughed at me and said, what now, Pat? And so I I told him what I wanted it for. And he was initially very reluctant to do that. But as luck would have it, um, they had a difficult time filling the beds. Hmm. Uh, I think there were at least a half a dozen of these three-bedroom billets. And they weren't able to fill the beds with the population for which they were intended. Uh, And so uh, I wound up being able to convince uh, our leadership that I could fill three of those beds every month, Mm. uh, you know, as long as they would give them to us. And and so that's how the residential component came in. And then I wrote a a grant to the vision to get some startup money. I think the original uh, funding for Pirate was $170,000. And uh, we hired some staff and we bought some computers and and that was it. And since that time, uh, we have had uh, the demand for the program has uh, been uh, quite high. I think right now we have, Rhonda probably knows, uh, maybe 20 pending wow. consults to get in. And, and our capacity, unfortunately, is only 18 to 21 patients uh, a year. Yeah. Because we only operate pirate every other month, uh, and we can only, uh, because of staffing limitations, see three patients, sometimes four uh, at a time. But the impetus was to increase access to care, you know, to remove those barriers to accessing services, and to improve our outcomes because we knew the dosage that veterans were getting on an outpatient basis, again, because of these barriers. 
maybe two hours a week. Yeah. You know, um, if that was, if that, and it wasn't, we weren't seeing the outcomes that I knew that we used to see when we were working with these chronic vets, when we had access to them for a month, six weeks, sometimes two months at a time. So it was, you know, the impetus for Pyre was increase access to services, improve patient outcomes and do that in a way that was not a burden to, to veterans. Well, and if I'm, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, if, I'm, if I might add there, um, Pirate initially was a local resource, but it very quickly became a national resource. We are the right. only intensive aphasia therapy program within VA. And so we are now meeting the national demand for intensive therapy for both our veteran population and our active duty service members. Yeah, that, that's correct, Mike. Um, when we first started, our uh, leadership here did not want us to offer this service beyond our vision. Right. That's our region, right? And eventually, uh, when the word got out that this service was available, we started receiving contacts from other VAs across the country. And then we were eventually able to convince our leadership that this was something that uh, was fulfilling a unique need within DHA. And they allowed us to open it up. And I will say that right now here at VA Pittsburgh, aside from our liver transplant program, Pirate is the only national referral center here at VA Pittsburgh for hmm. uh, any services uh, aside from our liver transplant program. So we receive intra-facility consults from VAs all over the country, and uh, we also uh, can provide services to active duty um, uh, members who are in DOD uh, well, hospitals. Yeah, one of my uh, clients at the VA in Los Angeles and who's now in our book club, he was in your pirate program. Okay, great. Yeah. How's he doing? He's doing great. We're doing a poetry writing workshop now, and he's the star of the group. Oh, that's great. <laughs> um, well, both of you have been doing this intensive uh, treatment program for a while, so I think you have some sense of how good of a model of treatment it is. I know that's a really broad question, but what are your impressions so far? Well, for, for full disclosure, I have only done one pirate session. <laughs> and it was the very first one. Um, and so I'm going to let Rhonda take that question because she's done many of them. So I think when we, um, you know, consider a model of rehabilitation for aphasia, pirates can really give patients a nice boost right? They come for four weeks of an intensive program with some goals. And we really work with them to hopefully tailor those goals and make them a little bit more specific and make sure that they're achievable. And I think it can, can be a nice boost in the recovery for um, someone. It is by no means a cure. Um, and that's frequently a misunderstanding, unfortunately, of a lot of our patients that are initially referred to pirates. Sometimes we have to be the first providers that tell them that there's no cure for aphasia mm. and help them to set realistic goals for their recovery, yeah. um, which was something that was very surprising to me initially and, and still is. 
surprising um, that people don't know that, don't know that there's not a cure for their aphasia? Yes, yes. And I think that there's a certain level of acceptance that goes along with that as well. I think that, you know, you can hear it, but hearing and understanding are two separate things. Wow, yeah. And sometimes, you know, we, we tell people very much up front about, you know, what we can, what we think we can do and that there's no cure. And unfortunately, sometimes that's a tough pill for them to swallow. And so sometimes around, you know, week three at the end of Pirate, there can still be some emotions and mood associated with the fact that that person's not cured or they still have aphasia. And so in addition to the, the aphasia therapy services that we provide, I think that there's a fair amount of emotional support mm -hmm. um, and counseling that goes along with the program as well. And I think that those are very important components to help patients with the holistic form of rehabilitation and recovery, not just the language piece. Do you think that people are coming into your program not knowing that there's not a cure? Because that's respond. that. Yeah, go ahead, Pat. Let me respond to that. Rhonda's observations are certainly correct. I think I think about it a little bit differently. I think that uh, most of the people that come here understand that there's no cure for aphasia. But what I think they hope are hoping for is that their recovery can be more complete, mm -hmm. or that this program is going to result in uh, a recovery or or outcomes that are going to be exponentially greater than where they are when they walk in. Right. And so I think a lot of times, you know, we do have good outcomes, um, mm -hmm. but I think um, most people who work with people with aphasia understand that uh, many times uh, recovery for different individuals is minimal. Uh, and for other individuals, there are greater gains. But I think mm -hmm. everyone comes here hoping that they're going to have a more complete recovery than the recovery that they had experienced there to four. I mean, most of the people that we see here are in the chronic phase yeah. of Asia. I, Rhonda probably knows these details better than I, but I don't think we uh, get too many folks in pirate that are sooner than three, four months post onset of their aphasia. It's rare. Yeah, it's rare. Yeah. I mean, I think all of us have to deal with clients' expectations. And of course, when people have a stroke and have aphasia, they, you know, have no prior experience probably with this type of problem. And, and so they do have often uh, unrealistic expectations or hopes for a dramatic outcome from pirate. I remember that when I was there and, and that, that pressure as a therapist, um, and Rhonda, your observation that it takes time for people, for it to kind of sink in or for people to really integrate that understanding that yes, they can continue to improve, but that there isn't a dramatic, you know, something that's going to give them a dramatic change. How, how do you manage those? expectations because i think the pressure in pirate is different than like for me as an outpatient right now you know people come in and sure they they want to speak like they used to speak or as close to it as possible 
But I think when people come into pirate, there's like this added expectation because it's a special program. It's intensive, et cetera, et cetera. And it's probably not just the patients or the, you know, your clients, it's their family. So how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? Absolutely. Well, there's definitely the added pressure that someone's traveling potentially from across the country for your services as a clinician. And I think it's very important. A lot of what we do starts before the patients even arrive here. So after they are admitted into the program, I typically have at least one or two phone conversations with the patients and potentially their surrogate or caregiver to hopefully define what the goals are for the program, tweak those goals as necessary based on the hypotheses that I have um, given the assessments that were given and their language profile. And I think the education piece really starts there as well with some of those phone conversations. And the education piece continues when they arrive. Um, on the first day, we have some educational programming for each of the three veterans in a group setting with their caregivers. And we start back at the basics about what aphasia is, some of the things that we know about recovery, expectations, um, and the program. And that piece follows throughout the entire pirate experience. There's multiple education sessions dealing with, um, you know, how to respond to your aphasia, how to adjust your aphasia, aphasia recovery. Sometimes patients or groups are specifically interested in neuroplasticity. Um, and so we, we certainly tailor these educational programming options based on what the patients and the, the surrogates or the caregivers are interested in. And I think that, um, you know, that's certainly an important piece when we're trying to consider realistic expectations for the program. So you actively, explicitly try to help them understand what kinds of outcomes they should, they might expect? We do. And part of it is a, is a growing process and a learning process too. You know, sometimes you have patients who completely surprise you and do amazing in the program. And sometimes you have patients who make slower gains. It's really hard to project which patient is going to perform in which manner. But nonetheless, you know, I educate the patients about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and the theoretical reasons as to the treatments that are selected and they're active in those processes. When I collect my probe data on a weekly basis, I review it with the patient so they can see the progress that they're making. We talk about their treatment plan. We might talk about how things are going back at the family house. You know, are, is there any evidence of generalization? And we tweak the plan together. Um, it's very much a a patient-centered model, and I'm there to help help um, tweak that with regards to you know my knowledge as a speech pathologist. But it's a patient-driven model based on their goals as well. So, so is your experience that you have people coming in who have high expectations because of the nature of your program, maybe expectations for a dramatic improvement, and then of course. You know, my experience there was that people make improvements, but 
again, often not as dramatic as they were expecting, but that when they leave, they're satisfied with what they did achieve in that. And I guess I'm just curious about, you know, people entering with high expectations for such a special program and then leaving with good results, but realistic results and how they interpret that by the time they leave. Absolutely. Um, It's interesting that you asked that question because in my time doing pirates, there hasn't been one patient that's come to me and not said that they don't want to come back for a second round of pirates. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, so certainly we're talking about expectations and how, you know, sometimes we don't necessarily meet the dramatic goals that a patient's wished for, but at the end of the day, they do realize the progress that they've made. And in the patient's minds, it seems like from what they tell us that it's far more of an improvement that they were receiving in their regular outpatient, you know, settings of one to two times a week. Mm. And they always want to come back to Pirate for another month of therapy. What I remember is, go ahead, Pat. I think that, and I think anyone, your your listeners will certainly understand this. Uh, You know, there's so much variation in practice around aphasia rehabilitation that I think that people who come through our program, if nothing else, receive a program of intervention that is perhaps unlike anything, not just in terms of its intensity, but in terms of the actual approaches to intervention uh, and just the way we manage the the case, if you will. And so I do think it's a unique experience. And I do think that veterans walk away from that experience, even if they had hoped for a, a greater change in terms of their their functioning, walk away from that experience, uh, believing that they received the best possible care that they could for the condition that they have. Yeah. And one of the advantages of a a program like this is that if you're seeing someone every day, and I know you do a lot of assessments uh, at the beginning, but that plus seeing somebody every day and just focusing on one person as a therapist, that allows you to understand somebody kind of more deeply and more completely than then you can if you're seeing a bunch of people once a week um, and your attention is just, you know, distributed. But Rhonda, another thing I notice is that you mentioned that people want to come back. Right? Mm-hmm. My experience was that sometimes it's it takes a week or two just to kind of get your rhythm, just to kind of find the sweet spot of goals and treatments and that maybe, you know, intensive aphasia treatment programs aren't just about people making gains, but they're opportunities for people to be better understood um, because of the intensity, right? So that when they're discharged, they have a better treatment plan than maybe could be achieved on an 
weekly outpatient basis. Is that is that your experience? It honestly is. I think that given the amount of time that we have to spend with these patients, you really have a unique opportunity to, for lack of better words, figure them out. Mm-hmm. You know, you've identified the locus of impairment on the testing, but now what? What's the queuing hierarchy that really works for this person? Or how can I tweak this evidence-based therapy to really work for this person who's sitting in front of me? And when you have the amount of time that we have in Pirates to do those things, you really do have a deeper understanding of that person's aphasia and their linguistic profile. And the unique opportunity with Pirate is to share that within VA to the receiving speech pathologist back home to hopefully continue on with the therapy plan. You figured out, you know, what the patient's responding to, how they're able to achieve their goals, and that clinician can continue that treatment plan on. And and I'd like to add to that, Mike. Mm-hmm. In addition, to that, I agree with everything that Rhonda just said. But in addition to that, you also get to know the person who has the aphasia. So mm-hmm. I think you you definitely wind up having a better understanding of the aphasia and how it's manifest. But you get to know that person, uh, right. who they are, what their expectations are, what their, you know, what's important to them, um, and and how they uh, respond to their aphasia, and how you can help them to respond to their aphasia uh, in a in a way that improves their communicative experience with their family, with their friends, with strangers. So it's both of those things. It's a unique opportunity to really understand the aphasia that they present with, but it's also a unique unique opportunity to understand who these people are, what their expectations are, what their uh, you know what they value, what their values are. And that's really the foundation yeah. for their therapy that they receive here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do therapy just like every other clinician does, SFA, Venus, um, Kendall's phonological approach. But what we do is grounded in what the patient wants out of the program. So if they want to, you know, be able to order in a restaurant better, that's what we work on with the items that they want to be ordering. Um, it's very customized based on that person that's sitting in front of you and and learning about them and their family and their their personal experiences and what they want to be able to get back to doing. And of course, they learn about themselves too. Yes, yes. In, in the process, yeah. And you know, talking about them learning about themselves, just to get back to the residential component of the program, they're learning from each other as mm, well. Right. The people who are in the pirate program, they're all in one kind of big apartment right um it, you know they share a kitchen and and yeah uh, they share a kitchen they have their own bedrooms and they share a kitchen i think what's really good is they're not just sharing the apartment with uh, the house it's a house it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a beautiful house uh, they're not just sharing that house with the other two um members of pirate who have aphasia they're sharing that house with other individuals who have other health conditions who are mm-hmm. also staying there and so you know, these folks with aphasia are uh, interacting with, you know, complete strangers who they're having dinner with, who they're having breakfast with, who they're, yeah. 
you know, uh, visiting within the lounge and the common areas. And, you know, they're, they're their best ambassadors. I, I, I have to say that um, the awareness of aphasia here in Pittsburgh has probably increased dramatically over the last 10 years, due in large part to the fact that we have these people with aphasia coming in here, staying at the family house with other members of the community who are there for other reasons and learning for the first time what aphasia is and and having breakfast and dinner and watching tv with someone who has aphasia yeah yeah earlier you mentioned that pirate gives people a boost so i know the challenge is once they leave how do they continue with that momentum is that am i accurate there Sure. And to be very honest with you, um, the number one recommendation is that they take a little bit of time off immediately after the program. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. At least um, generally a few days to a week just to kind of breathe um, mm. because it is so intensive and they do get so much therapy at one in such a brief amount of time. Um, but then we absolutely do recommend that they reinstate their speech and language services. And we try to direct, we try to contact the, the receiving speech pathologist to, to help facilitate that. You know, I've seen uh, clients that have gone to other intensive aphasia treatment programs. And I don't know if this is an accurate observation or not. But if what these intensive programs do is not just provide people with an opportunity to make some greater gains, but also give them a kind of a momentum and a better treatment plan, etc. Uh, I, I still, I, I'm, my impression is, is that the follow-up on that is, is where things get lost. I think you're right, Mike, and it's part of the fund. It's, it's the fundamental problem that we have with access to aphasia rehabilitation services. Um, if they, if you simply, you know, if you live in a rural community, or you live sometimes even in an urban community where you just can't access services, mm -hmm. uh, then um, and, and that's frequently why we have people come here. They can't access any services yeah. uh, where they. I just came back from the Project Bridge meeting, uh, which was great down in uh, St. Petersburg. And I met a couple there that moved from New York City to the eastern coast of Florida, I guess the Fort Lauderdale area down there. And they were just completely taken aback by the fact they, they couldn't find a, a aphasia therapy services anywhere in that whole area. And they were, they're, they're desperately seeking someone that can provide any services. Yeah. I think to counteract that and, and assist with access to care, you know, the VA's really pushed telehealth services recently. Mm -hmm. And so previously, VA was offering um, telehealth services from VA to clinical uh, or community outpatient, outpatient clinics or for CBOX. And now they're really considering and implementing a model that's provider to home for the patient. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, if patients have 
their own um, computer or smartphone with a webcam, they can connect with a provider using telehealth options. And um, there's actually opportunities as well if the patients don't have their own devices that they can be given them for clinical telehealth services to home by the VA. So I think it's a step in the right direction to improve access to care, but certainly it's it's not 100%. Yeah, well, it sounds like the resources are just kind of not there in terms of having therapists in the community who are you know experienced and, and knowledgeable and and capable of really taking the the treatment plan that let's say you've developed in that momentum and hit the ground running i mean i'm in a huge metropolitan los angeles and it's a struggle here to struggle here. I can only think of a few people that have that kind of experience. Yeah. And you think about general speech pathology caseloads too. Um, you know, sometimes clinicians are at a facility by themselves. They don't have that team atmosphere, or maybe mm. they don't have a lot of experience with aphasia, or maybe there's one person with aphasia on their caseload and everything else is swallowing. Right. So there's a of, you know, multifactorial things that go into the follow-up plan of care, and it's a challenge. Well, Pat, I think maybe you might uh, agree with this, but I started in 93, and I think I was at the tail end of that time in the VA when people were an inpatient for four months, and they got treatment every day. But, you know, that also meant that the therapist got lots of experience working with people with aphasia. And then, as I remembered, it was when the Clinton administration came in that managed care model started Mm -hmm. to be adopted. And then length of stay went down. And many of our vets are live a fair distance from our hospital. And that became a barrier. But over time, it seems like you do see this pattern wherein therapists are getting less and less experience on a consistent basis uh, working with this population. And Rhonda, as you kind of alluded to, you know, their, their time gets filled up doing more and more swallowing. Well, uh, yeah, our scope of practice has definitely broadened as well. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think that, yeah. You know, here at VA, in addition to our pirate program, we provide services to veterans with head and neck cancer. We manage complex surgical airways. Uh, we manage folks with neurological swallowing business, right? swallowing difficulties. So uh, um, transgender voice uh, treatments. Uh, so the scope of practice has definitely grown since I started practicing back in the early days when our caseload was strictly people with aphasia or motor speech disorders. And occasionally someone that was, uh, had uh, stuttering, was a stutterer, or had fluency uh, problems. And so the scope of practice is certainly broadened. We're serving more people for different types of communication disorders. And you're right. I think that as a result, as well as other factors, managed care, the uh, length of stays being shortened, 
younger providers today, I don't think, are getting the types of experience that you and I did in working with uh, stroke survivors with aphasia. We're actually trying to do something about that here in Pittsburgh as well, Mike, that I know you're aware of, uh, because you actually participated in it this year, and that was our partner program, mm -hmm. where we were able to offer six residency scholarships to speech pathologists currently practicing in the VA to come and join us during one of our pirate sessions and work with people like Rhonda and to sit down and uh, go through some didactic trainings with some of our staff, our research staff here and myself, and really try to uh, assist them in improving their skills in managing people with aphasia. And we're going to continue that program going forward. So I hope we can get you back. Uh, <laughs> well, and, I think that's uh, an amazing idea and really. And again, the idea is to get more people in the in different communities to be able to feel confident and to have the tools and the experience and the knowledge they need to successfully manage people with aphasia. Was this the first group of people that came in when I was back there uh, over the summer? No, Mike, you actually, I think, had the, the last group. We, we had three different what we call partner sessions. That's our networking, our, mm. our, our Pittsburgh aphasia networking. You have to have an acronym <laughs> for any program. In any event, um, right. we uh, offered six residency scholarships total, but they each uh, they came in pairs. So and, and they were in three different pirate sessions. So we had a provider from Cincinnati and I believe it was Nashville in the first session. Mm -hmm. And then we had a provider from Minneapolis and uh, Richmond in our second session. And then I think we were in the third session where we had providers from Portland, Oregon and the uh, Los Angeles. Uh, I think it was the Bay Area. The Bay Area. Yeah. Right. That, that came in. So they were our, the last two of the six hmm. that you had the opportunity to uh, work with. Yeah. And the feedback we've gotten from these guys is been incredible. I mean, you, they're, they're changing the way they practice. Yeah. As a yeah. result of going through that one month, or it's actually a five week residency program. They're literally changing their practice. And that's not something that happens easily or, you know, licensed providers where they, they have a training experience that causes them to really rethink how they're managing their patients and change their practice. I think another important thing to add is that they're now part of a network. So, you know, we have a half a dozen skilled providers um, along with our VA Pittsburgh team, and we meet monthly on telehealth calls to talk about patients and talk about cases and throw ideas off of one another and share treatment materials. And that's really important to um, continue to provide the best quality of care we can um, and have access to, to providers that really know and are experienced in aphasia. I think it can help drive our clinical practice and our treatment. Yeah, I, I think that's really important too. I think what we sometimes take for granted, although I think about this a lot, is right here in the space that Rhonda and I are sitting in here right now and within our clinic, we have probably no less than a dozen individuals, uh, some of whom are 
you know, practicing aphasia clinicians, some of whom are really top-notch clinical scientists, all practicing in the area of aphasia. I mean, we can sit around our conference room and have a dozen people that between the 12 of them probably have a couple hundred years of clinical and research uh, and teaching experience in the area of aphasia. Do you see this as uh, something that's going to support the follow-up care of people who come through pirate? Yeah, we, well, we hope two things. We, we hope that by training more VA providers to understand better and manage their patients with aphasia better, that there will be fewer patients that need to travel from wherever they live to come here and see us, although we welcome everyone to come here, but also that uh, when we do receive referral, referrals from various VAs, that we know that when they go back to those VAs, that there will be a cohort of providers there that can follow through on the boost, of, uh, you know, or the treatment plans that we have recommended for them when they return. VA is no different than the private community in many respects. There are many VAs, smaller VAs, uh, where there's maybe only one licensed provider and you know, they refer their person with aphasia to us because it may be the only person with aphasia that they've seen in the past couple of years. Right. You know, Mike, it's interesting too, because when Pat really says that these clinicians have changed their clinical practice, they have. Um, our colleague in Cincinnati, she was so astounded by the, the progress made in that particular pirate session that she went back to her chief and um, she started her own intensive program where she's seeing patients three days a week for three hours a day wow. and for, for three weeks. And so she cycled um, two patients so far into this model and she's had pretty good outcomes for her report with that, that model and some success. And another partner in Minneapolis is trying to do the same thing, but using a hybrid approach of not only face face, but supplementing that with some of the telehealth that I was telling you about to get patients a little bit of a larger dose of aphasia therapy in a shorter amount of time. So I think it'll be interesting to see how their two respective programs continue to do. And if this is a model that we might want to consider adopting at a different mm -hmm. level as well. And, and another adaptation of our model that I know has been implemented by one of our partners is that she has uh, her facility had an inpatient. So it's had inpatient rehab beds. So these are subacute rehab beds. And when there uh, is a vacancy, and I don't recall how many beds they have, but now she's been able to convince her leadership to actually bring chronic people with chronic aphasia back in one or two of those beds when they're not filled so that they can get intensive primarily language therapy as well as some other uh, services as well. And so I think that uh, at least for this first go round, the providers that you know came in and did our residency program uh, have really found ways to uh, increase the dosage that they're able to provide their patients and, and change their practice, change their, their therapeutic approaches to interventions. Yeah. So we're really those outcomes. And, yeah. And I don't, I don't know that we'll be able to do six uh, scholarships in the coming year, but we're going to do, we're going to do at least a couple. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Staying on this topic of 
creative solutions to doing intensive aphasia treatment programs. Do you think you could do an intensive aphasia tr treatment program th solely through telehealth? Through what, Mike? Solely through telehealth. Could you do a, a an ICAP just through telehealth? Well, I mean, ICAP means... Or, or an, it, am I using the wrong acronym here? Intensive? Well, I, I think, you know, yeah. I mean, I think that if you would talk to some of our colleagues that coined that phrase, uh, intensive, comprehensive, I think that, um, I mean, they all differ in, in terms of their components, but I think the, the concept there is one where there are multiple different um, opportunities for providing service, so computer-based, face-to-face, uh, educational programming. So uh, do I think you could provide higher doses of uh, directed aphasia rehabilitation services to patients via telehealth? Absolutely. You know, in VA right now, the, the problem is, is the infrastructure in place. You know, can you get three slot? You can get it. Can you get a three hour slot for that one patient when there's a whole bunch of other patients that are trying to use that telehealth equipment for a dermatology appointment or a mental health appointment or or something else? But uh, in private practice, if if uh, you know, or in, in the private community, if you have the platform and you can go into people's homes, could you do, you know, five two-hour sessions a day every day? Sure. The, the question becomes in that context is who's going to pay for it, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, the insurance companies still aren't paying uh, except for a certain, you know, there's a cap on the services that that will be paid for, or at least you have to keep requesting payment. You probably know a lot more about this, Mike, than we do here, or it's going to be private pay. So, you know, if you're a, a patient with resources and you can afford to do private pay, then I'm certain that you could do that effectively, uh, again, given the, the skills of the provider and, and the platform that's in place. Again, at the bridge meeting, we had a conversation with um, people with aphasia about this. And, you know, one of the things that they mentioned, at least the folks that I talked to very clearly, is that they were not very much interested or motivated by simply practicing exercises on a computer. They were completely open to using telehealth to engage with a provider. Mm -hmm. They wanted a provider on the other end of that encounter. They did not want to simply be sitting in front of a computer and, you know, using a an app to practice word finding skills or or to read better. They they want to engage with a knowledgeable and a caring rehabilitation specialist, facial rehabilitation specialist. Is that so because I, I, they, they they thought they needed the knowledge and the skill of the therapist, or was there something just about the interactive nature of doing that kind of work? Did, do you remember? My impression is we were in a group with, um, um, it was a group of eight and four of those folks were uh, two patients with aphasia and their spouses. And, you know, the feedback that we got was a, uh, frequently, they have difficulty manipulating the programs when they're there by themselves. So, you know, they, they need better uh, support 
in terms of fully utilizing these applications, number one. But to your point, uh, I believe what's important to them is the therapeutic interaction and the therapeutic relationship. People don't mind, my impression and their feedback was, is they don't mind receiving services from a provider using the technology that we're using right now. But they want to be working with someone that they trust and that they believe can guide them to their best with that sense from, you know, they understand the need for practice, but they want to check in with a provider. And, and that's, uh, I think, uh, you know, a good model. So certainly people can practice, but they, they want to check in and they want, they want a provider guiding their uh, recovery, their treatment plan, someone that they can problem solve and, and, and talk to. You mentioned a bridge meeting. Um, I know I've heard someone told me about that. What What is the bridge meeting? It was a meeting that was funded by PCORI, so the patient-centered, um, PCORI Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. I think many of your listeners might be familiar with PCORI. PCORI is specifically interested in, in supporting comparative effectiveness studies that involve patients with the condition being studied, being active members of the research team. And uh, this meeting was sponsored by PCORI and through, and I'm forgetting the name of um, the aphasia center down there uh, that spearheaded this. It wasn't aphasia access. Uh, You'll have to forgive me, but uh, it was basically a meeting. Uh, so our colleague, Jackie Hinckley, mm-hmm. was the PI. Uh, so who is Jackie Hinckley with? Is it Voices of Hope, I believe? Maybe. Hope is in Florida. Yeah, I, I believe it was Voices of Hope uh, that sponsored this meeting mm-hmm. uh, that was supported by Corey. And Jackie Hinckley was the, 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 the PI on this project. And it was a meeting that brought together clinicians, aphasia researchers, and people and their spouses living with aphasia together Mm. to develop teams consisting of people living with aphasia and their family members, investigators, and clinicians. And the goal of the meeting was to try to develop research questions that were important to people living with aphasia within the context of people that are providing aphasia therapy services and within the context of people conducting aphasia research to uh, hopefully generate um, some pro- some proposals that would result in studies that uh, are directly relevant and translatable to people living with aphasia. Interesting. It was a great meeting and I personally learned a lot and I think there could be some uh, good outcomes that that come from it. Great. Well, Pat and Rhonda, I've taken up uh, plenty of your time. Thank you very much for talking to us about the Pirate Program. You do a lot of great work there, both on the research and the training side and the patient care side. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Our pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. To learn more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, please visit www.ancds.org. Thank you.